0: Sentire media.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to A History of Italy. (music) Episode 34 Another Henry, Too Many Popes, and Naughtiness in the Church. Here we are back on track after a little bit of a pause and hopefully we'll be able to stay on track for a while now. In the last episode, we headed down south to see how the Normans came along, put down roots and spread like wildfire, increasing their holdings rapidly and becoming a major force to be reckoned with in the area. Up north, we last left Holy Roman Emperor Conrad II after his failed attempt at recapturing Bishop Aribert of Milan by besieging the city. The Emperor had given up and headed back to Germany with wounded pride, but not seriously affected on a political level. He had seen to the succession issue quite some time before when in 1027 he had raised his son Henry to the throne hoping to guarantee a smooth succession. Indeed, when Conran died on the 4th of June 1039, his son became Henry III. The new king of Germany had to first of all shore up the empire's German borders, but once that was done, he was ready to make his way down to Italy. As usual, things there were a little bit complicated. You will remember that In an attempt to stoke the flames of the discontent of the lower vassals, and pit them against the great magnates, Emperor Conrad had issued the Constitutio de Feudis in 1037, which granted a series of rights to the lower nobles, the most important of which was the right to inherit the lands they were granted. Although this document was supposed to create a solid base of support for the emperor against the great landowners of the country, it simply took away the bone of contention between the higher and lower nobles, thus creating a united anti-foreign and at times anti-imperial front. So, with the complicated framework in place, Henry took a deep breath and headed on down. He made peace with Archbishop Arabert of Milan, although by that time the hero of the Carroccio had lost a lot of his power and prestige in the city. Henry used his father's old buddies the Canossa to help him navigate the troubled waters. This was quite literal since part of Bonifacio of Canossa's duties were to physically escort the future emperor, his overlord, through northern Italy and down through Tuscany. During the descent, both men realised that they didn't actually like each other that much. For Henry, Bonifacio was far too powerful, and for Bonifacio, Henry looked like he intended to interfere a bit too much. We'll see in time how things took quite a turn for the worse in this relationship. However, The situation of stability in the north held for the moment, and in the south, Henry immediately understood that the Normans were the right horse to bet on, also considering the ambitions of that grabby prince of Salerno, Guaimar, who could now also consider himself Duke of Calabria and Puglia, although he would be nothing without the Normans. That more or less sorted out the north and the south, But then there was, as always, the middle bit, the Papal States. What was going on there? Well, little flashback. In the year 1032, Albrecht III of the Tuscolo family had managed to have his son, Theophilact, elected with the name of Benedict IX. He was also related to the previous two popes, who had made sure that he very quickly went through the steps to becoming Pope. I say quickly because at the very latest sources put his age at 20, with some as young as 11 or 12, although these sources may have been from opposing factions. So what sort of bloke was this 12 or 20-year-old Pope? First of all, we must say again that this was a time of violent factional fighting in Rome, so we can't be 100% sure of how much of what is said of him is actually true. Having said this, the anti-papal historian Ferdinand Gregorovius wrote about Benedict that, It seemed as if a demon from hell in the disguise of a priest occupied the chair of Peter and profaned the sacred mysteries of religion by his insolent courses. Sounds charming, doesn't it? Pope Victor III, in his third book of dialogues, made reference to Benedict's rapes, murders, and other unspeakable acts of violence and sodomy. His life as a Pope was so vile, so foul, so execrable, that I shudder to think of it. This is all rather ironic when you think that the name Benedict means blessed whatever the case may have been in september of 1044 the romans had had enough and the opposing crescenzi family were able to get the upper hand and had one of their men put on the papal throne with the name of sylvester the third for those of you who are a little bit disappointed that he wasn't called john as a pope you may find consolation in the fact that his real name actually was John. He was the Bishop of Sabina. Sylvester didn't last long at all because the Tuscolo took up arms and managed to put young Benedict IX back on the throne. Things weren't over yet, though. You can always count on popes in this period for some entertainment. At this point, the main aristocratic Roman families managed to get their act together and have both popes step down and elected a third, the pious and cultured Gregory VI. Now, he could have finally been the right man for the job. However, even he didn't get to stay very long because in 1046, Henry III finally arrived. He wasn't quite emperor yet. He made his way down and at the Council of Sutri in 1046 he had all three previous popes deposed and substituted by Clement II who was Henry's chaplain and was the one who finally crowned him Holy Roman Emperor. This demonstrates Henry's desire not only to regain influence over the papacy but to kick off badly needed church reforms. Quick digression here for a History of Italy pop quiz. Why was the city of Sutri, which we just mentioned, politically important? Think about it. Rack your brains, go back to the Lombards. Well, it was the city which was taken from the Byzantines by the Lombard king Lutbrand and then given back in 728, not to the Byzantines, but directly to Pope Gregory II, thus marking one of the possible founding moments of the Papal States. Did you get that? Good job. Those who did get it, go and get yourselves a nice bottle of Chianti or Barolo. So with this Clement II, the guy who Henry III had just chosen, and his successors, in particular Leo the Ninth and Victor II, the papacy went off in a new direction of reform and changing relationships with the empire. One that would lead in a relatively short time to the investiture crisis. In a certain sense, you could say that Henry, by trying to right the wrongs of the church, shot himself in the foot, or as we say in Italian, si è dato la zappa sui piedi. He hit his feet with the hoe, That's H-O-E, the farming implement, and not the other meaning. Or in any case, he hit the feet of his successors. Henry III, indeed, ended up dying in 1056, leaving his wife, Agnes of Poiton, as regent for their young son and future Henry IV, who was the one who had to start dealing with the aforementioned mess of the investitures but that's getting a little bit ahead of things before we go there we need to first take a look at the church beyond just the pope and then go back down south and see what the normans got up to while henry III was still alive so we've been talking for a while about all the naughtiness that was going on at the head of the church with the popes but what was going on lower down? Well things weren't much better there. Perhaps the biggest scandal was that of simony, which basically means the buying and selling of ecclesiastical offices. I actually managed to say ecclesiastical the first time. Great. Now, the term simony comes from the name of Simon Magus. So, Simon Magus was a biblical figure who was hanging around Samaria just after the time of Jesus, doing magic tricks for people. I'd imagine pulling denarii from behind people's ears, or grabbing their noses, or maybe that thing where it looks like you're taking your thumb or finger off that I never quite managed to master. Anyway, he's doing his tricks, and along come some Christians going around doing their whole Christianizing things, and Simon Magus sees them and feels it sounds like a good deal, and so he's baptized by Philip the Evangelist. Sometimes later, he caught sight of Peter, Saint Peter, channeling the force of the Holy Spirit by the simple imposition of his hands and performing all kinds of miracles. Well, Simon Magus just went crazy when he saw that. He wanted to get a hold of that magic, and so, he went up to Peter and asked to buy it. Peter went totally mental with rage at this, and to make a long story short, a thousand years later, Simon's name was used to define the corrupt practice of buying and selling church offices. If you'd like to hear more about Simon Magus and hear it done by somebody who knows what they're talking about, then go and check out episode 15 of Steve Guerra's History of the Papacy on Simon Magus. So, the man gave his name to the practice of buying and selling ecclesiastical offices, which, considering all the lands the churches and monasteries held, was a rather good business. Even though the cost could be very high, the investment for those that could pay it was quite fruitful in time. It was destined in particular for second and third sons, because the first was usually the one who would inherit his family's lands and wealth. So, Mummy and Daddy would buy the next one or two along a nice little church position. Something like, Daddy is not fair, Albrecht gets all the lands and stuff and I don't get anything, it's so unfair. Now, now, Giovanni, stop whining, and on the way home, I'll buy you a nice little church and make you a bishop. Okay, but I want one that makes beer and has some nice young nuns, not too far off. This was particularly widespread. For example, in Narbonne, in modern-day France, a father paid 100,000 gold pieces to make his son an archbishop. Incidentally, the boy was about 10 years old. It wasn't just the church who was setting up shop either. In many areas of Europe, it was the secular powers who controlled the church offices. Philip of France made a pretty interesting manoeuvre. There was an auction for a church office. That's right, an auction, because that's how they would get the most money out of the operation and one of the losing participants in the auction expressed their disappointment to the king who came up with the following idea let me get the money from the winner then I'll accuse him of simony and strip him of the lands and then I can sell them to you another example came from Germany where a baron was able to sort out eight of his sons by collecting eight different church positions Simony was the really big issue with the church in the 10th and 11th century. The other issue was that of celibacy, i.e. the fact that the official church line was that priests could not get married. The rule was not very strictly enforced, as not respecting it was seen as a sort of lesser evil. Indeed, towards the end of the 10th century, the bishop of Verona, Raterio, declared that all of the priests in his diocese were actually married. If it wasn't wives, it was concubines, with some priests entertaining up to four or five of them. This whole rather desperate situation had been created by the crumbling of a strong central authority, which had left the resources, the lands and wealth of the church, to the mercy of the local interests and power struggles. In short there was no higher power that could protect the church from local lords, and for a long time, the popes had been very much more interested in their own wealth, power, and entertainment. There was no doubt that things needed to change, but where could the change come from? Well, the only place where the winds of change could blow from that could bring the spirit of renewal and reform that could change this situation were the monasteries. This was because the monks were protected from corruption by the strict rules of their order. If all you can do is pray, study, work as a farmer and artisan, pray some more, study, and then pray a bit, while leading a frugal life, you don't really need to accumulate riches to do so. There was also a great amount of respect for these holy men who were respected even when nobles would take over their lands and rob their monasteries, and in the end they would repent on their deathbed and give everything back. This sense of respect was very widespread in an era of high literacy and lack of culture. The people would turn to the church for the important moments in their lives, the good and the bad. If there was a famine, you would donate to the monastery for God to intercede. If there was a pestilence, you would have a religious procession, and so on. Another factor that allowed a certain advantage to the lower levels of the church hierarchy, and in particular to the monasteries, was that there was a certain democracy. You could say class mobility, if the issue of class had been invented yet. To be a noble, to access the secular power, you had to be the son of a noble. There was no other way, really. To become a priest or a monk you needed the will and intelligence to learn to read and then learn a little bit of Latin. From there you could rise quite high and quite quickly. We will soon have the chance to speak quite a bit about Gregory the Seventh, who was a farmer's son. So with the chance to recruit good men the church soon gained a monopoly over a very precious resource, culture. This hasn't really helped with regard to the role and image of women unfortunately but at least someone was preserving human knowledge in this period. So for decades the desire for reform had been bubbling in the depths and the popes of the Tuscolo and the Crescenzi were happy to let it bubble along as long as they were free to do what they wanted at the top. Now things were different. Clement II Emperor Henry and the popes that followed Clement were above local rivalries and interests and they were ready to look around at all of Christendom. They would not like what they saw at all and that was about to cause trouble, big trouble. Next time we'll see how that trouble started when the popes first looked south to the Normans. As always, thank you very much to everyone for listening. Thanks to the Anita and Giuseppe Garibaldi level patrons on Patreon, Preston, Roberta, Sean and Jeff. Thanks again to Roberta for introducing the ladies in our classification. Thanks to the Mazzini and Matilde di Canossa level patron, Benjamin. Thanks to the Galileo and Margarita Hack level, Chris, Stephen, Vincent, J and Shelby, and thanks very much to our Dante and Maria Montessori level, Sen. Also, welcome to our new patron, Caitlin A., who has a lovely name and also a lovely surname. Thanks, Caitlin, for coming on board. You can get in touch via email, hello at com, on the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, you can click through to our Facebook and Twitter accounts and you can consult timelines and maps to help navigate the complicated history of our country Until next time, thanks again very much and Arrivederci
0: and we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.